This edition of The Recap was first broadcast on the 14th of November 2015 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Recap, a selection of highlights from the past week's live news and analysis programs broadcast right here on Monocle 24. Over the next half hour, I'll bring you some of the very best interviews and reports from The Globalist, The Briefing, The Dory House and The Monocle Daily. Coming up, the uprising in Ukraine was a clear rejection of closer ties with Russia. But just how much pro-European sentiment remains there today? We'll also hear from Australia's Human Rights Commissioner during a week that saw violence erupting at one of the country's asylum seeker detention centres and some harsh criticism from the UN. Plus, beer brewers unite, but is it good news? And why might Britain's foreign policy be suffering a bout of indecisiveness? All that and a little bit more too coming up today on The Recap with me, Ben Ryland. ahead of us as ever. First up, though, we saw some big news coming out of Syria late in the week. An airstrike by US forces targeted the British Islamic State militant Mohammed Mwazi, known as Jihadi John. The man had become known for his appearance in gruesome videos showing the killings of American and British hostages. The Pentagon says it is still assessing the effectiveness of the strike in the Syrian city of Raqqa, the de facto capital of Islamic State. However, a senior US military official says that Mwazi was killed in the strike with a very high level of certainty. Robert Fox is defence editor at the Evening Standard newspaper here in London. He spoke to Tom Edwards on Friday's edition of The Briefing. Well, Mwazi wasn't uh, significant as a political or even a military leader, but boy, was he significant as a propaganda tool. And I think in view of other things that have been going on, yes, it is a strike that would be in the roster, particularly of the American and the British, and they work very closely. Uh, What they're beginning to demonstrate is that there is a degree of very good targeting of coordination going on at the moment. Mm -hmm. And the bit I think that they really don't want to talk about is the elements that are coming in from ground truth. I think that they've got good human on the ground or what human they can glean from open sources. They're handling very, very intelligently because in view of the strike, sir, plural, Just look at the Twitter traffic. The Daily Telegraph of London, of all papers, has got a very, very good handle on the Twitter traffic in the area. And in the area, there is a lot of anti-ISIS Twitter traffic uh, emanating from there. And an eyewitness from Raqqa said there were 14 drone strikes, of which this was one, around the midnight hour. It was in the clock tower square by the clock tower. And individuals were seen to get into a vehicle. The alleged target and was the plus two others and they were taken out the uh, american anonymous military source they always speak on conditions of anonymity use the term eviscerated i think the evisceration of jihadi john is not the point it's that things are getting good from baghdadi's point of view as a commander now not even as a political leader they've got military problems hmm. they've got operational security problems there are no secure communications and the brits and the americans 
and local agencies and other European agencies were picking up a hell of a lot of traffic. I think, yeah, there's something going on. I don't say ISIS is defeated, but the particular element led by Baghdadi, the founder, is on the back foot. What does your, I don't know, your experience and your understanding of these things, Robert, tell you about how an action like this is put together then? What sort of precedes a successful, as we think it is, a strike of this nature? Well, this is the bit that Cameron and Obama will be told by their military advisers, and particularly the spooks in MI6. It's not necessarily the CIA, it's the military agencies, not to talk too much about, because it's a package. And it's a package which listeners and readers should identify with the acronym ISTAR. It is the strategic targeting and reconnaissance. And this goes on for some time. And it's actually quite a big band. There are quite a few instruments in this orchestra. And that's why there was no exaggeration. I think that they will have said that British aircraft, British drones will have been involved in this surveillance operation. It's about target acquisition. They would have wanted to have taken out Jihadi John for a long time. They would have worked like mad to get his telephone signature if he's using a telephone. By the way, he'd gone offline for months. They weren't picking him up even through the dark net. He must have realised that once he did these ghastly things, starting with James Foley in August last year, that he was going to be a wasting asset. He was involved in a war that he declared himself, and he was bound to be his victim. There is almost something, not even Shakespearean, there's something of a Greek drama. It is the fates. It is this dramatic inevitability that was happening to him. Now... We're going into another act of the drama because what will be really significant is the kind of signals and language that is being used through the propaganda machine, not necessarily of ISIL itself, but by affiliates, fellow travellers and sympathisers. There are people who've always stuck up for the jihadi cause, like Cage, who said this is an abuse of human rights, that this man was a victim. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays and how that plays on the recruiting traffic coming in by the iPads to the kids, the adolescents in bedrooms in London. Robert Fox there chatting to Tom Edwards on Friday's edition of The Briefing. Now, it might be fair to say that the crisis in Syria has distracted international attention away from Ukraine in recent months. But the lull in violence there has been shattered more than a few times. More recently this week, just hours before the European Union's foreign policy chief arrived in Kiev. Ukraine's military says its troops engaged pro-Russian insurgents in the Donetsk region, the first direct combat in two months. It was Ukraine's desire for closer ties with the rest of Europe that first triggered the confrontation. But after months of secret and at times dirty bargaining with the European Union, is there any pro-Euro sentiment left? Ukrainian journalist Maxim Eristavi has been covering Ukraine's crisis since its early stages and throughout the violence in Maiden Square. He joined Monocle's Paul Osborne and Emma Nelson on Monday's edition of the Monocle Daily from Kiev. The whole sign that the Ukrainian parliament can basically ditch some important provisions like anti-LGBT discrimination to the labor code is a huge sign that actually politically EU is losing its ground in Ukraine, that the Ukrainian parliament can defy such a thing and, you know, let it go, says a lot about the lack of involvement of EU. That bill you're talking about, about banning discrimination against gays at work, that was one of the specific things that the EU said you have to address this issue if you want closer ties with Europe. 
Their countries like Georgia and Moldova, they were pressed hard to adopt the same kind of legislation. They did, despite the public uproar and despite the backlash from the political forces. But in Ukraine, where actually I think the public is pretty much on board with this provision, despite that this is a homophobic country and people are not on board with the civil rights equality, but at the same time they understand that there is a greater good in this. But political forces, they're not very willing to let this highly politicized issue go because then they will lose one of the main playing card for politics and divisive politics when it comes to elections. What willingness is there from the part of the Ukrainian people to shift towards Europe? I think the EU does not still understand how huge and powerful desire of the Ukrainian public is to rejoin the European family. And I'm not talking about European Union, but mostly being on board with European values and the way Europe is being operated legally. And on the side of the EU, that's something that actually many officials wouldn't acknowledge on record, but they say it off record very often that there is no general strategy towards Ukraine anymore. There is no common position on foreign policy. There is even lack of willingness to accept even free visa uh, regime with Ukraine. The Eastern Partnership is practically dead, although nobody wants to admit it because it will be a huge success and huge win for Russia. And in this case, when there is lack of desire from the European Union, what you see is a rising frustration inside Ukraine that doesn't see enough delivered from the EU when it comes to warmer climate of relationships. It's just a huge gap between what EU expects from Ukraine and what Ukraine expects from the EU. In Ukraine, they see things clearly that it's not possible to join the EU anytime soon. But at the same time, they kind of disappointed with the lack of messages, unifying messages or support. So there is no, for example, Marshall Plan how to support Ukrainian reforms. The public is frustrated with European officials not pressing their Ukrainian politicians harsh enough when it comes to corruption fight. So they want more assertiveness from the EU when it comes to pressuring even their own officials back at home. And it's not happening. That was Maxim Eristavi there, Ukrainian journalist, in conversation with Monocle's Paul Osborne and Emma Nelson on Monday's edition of the Monocle Daily. It's time now for a snippet from Tuesday's edition of the Monocle Daily. And it's not been a glorious couple of weeks for Russia. However, Vladimir Putin may at least reflect that headlines about questionable military interventions in Syria and Ukraine, probable terrorist bombings of tourist flights and likely conspiracy to steal Olympic medals does actually distract discussion from wider deficiencies that permeate Russian politics. They have not, however, escaped Reuters. The agency's ongoing series, Comrade Capitalism, illuminates the extent to which a startling proportion of Putin's friends and relations have become fabulously rich during his tenure, including his 29-year-old daughter, Katerina, and her 30-something billionaire husband. Monocle's Andrew Miller spoke to one of the journalists behind the report, Stephen Gray. It's taken us a while to put this together, this, and this series has been going on for some time, because it's not exactly easy to find out information, particularly about the family and children of some of the elite in Russia. But what we were surprised to find out really was how things are moving on between the generations, where you've had a very close circle of friends, very close to the Russian president, 
who've become extraordinarily wealthy during his time, but now they're sort of moving on to the next generation, and among them doing very well is his daughter, younger daughter, I should say, who he's taken extraordinary lengths to protect and to shield from publicity, but of course she's no longer a minor. She's 29 years old, and as we found out, has quite significant positions of authority now. She's been made a deputy vice-rector of Moscow State University, and has some extraordinary skills. She trained as a, went to university studying Oriental languages, and she's now publishing papers about quite impressive mathematical subjects, as well as running a sort of institute at the university. She has declared herself to be married to this, his name is Kirill Shamilov, who's the son of Nikolai Shamilov, who's one of his closest friends back in, and from St. Petersburg. He's a billionaire, owns a share of Bank Rossiya, which is a bank in St. Petersburg, very close to Putin and under sanctions for that reason. So what you're seeing is they're sort of intermarrying, if you like, on the next level. There's a very small circle there who have got positions, certainly according to critics, of state-run companies and of access to state funds. So you see that, in a way, people with public office do not necessarily get officially paid large amounts of money, but where the sort of family can do well is that the children are able to take position in state-run companies or in private sector benefiting from public sector contracts and are doing very well. We've been tracking how public revenue has been shared out to the extent that people close to Putin and others who are very well connected have got a very sort of unfair share of the public purse, of taxpayers' money. So it's not just ownership, but also the, the, the budget. So for example, when we looked at the Russian railways, spend a huge amount of money moving through that. What we saw was that in very major projects, you know, up to two-thirds of the money was frittered away into offshore companies to Lord knows who, and only a third of the money seemed to be going to the actual projects to actually you know, deliver the projects to build railways for people. So a large amount of money is disappearing. The elite continue essentially as normal, whilst at the same time, Sanctions have impacted on the Russian economy, which, you know, combined with the price of oil, which has fallen down. So the Russian economy is not doing particularly well, but the Russian elite is no particular sign that they are under threat. Reuters reporter Stephen Gray. Up next on The Recap, Australia's Human Rights Commissioner Tim Wilson pops in to Midori House. How do Europe's business leaders start their day? Everyone's seeing the possibility of what reforms could do to unleash the power of the Indian economy is really exciting. Who tracks the stories that really matter like no one else? You're going to take so much money out of the Greek economy that they can't possibly generate growth. You have to manage a transition to a more private-oriented economy. Where can you have a real conversation to kickstart your working day? Uh, you, you don't mean the referendum on gay marriage, do you? <laughs> I don't. Uh, which Although is coming that was up, su- surprising. Very interesting. And the International New York Times has a piece. They assume that it will be passed. Mm-hmm. The answer to all these questions is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Weekdays at 9am in Istanbul and 7am in London. You're listening to The Recap, a look back at our coverage of the week gone by in live news shows broadcast right here on Monocle 24. I'm Ben Rylan. Australia's treatment of asylum seekers has often drawn international criticism. 
Human rights groups say processing people in offshore detention centres is cruel and consecutive governments have operated the centres under a cloud of secrecy. This week, things got even worse when a riot broke out at one of the detention centres on Christmas Island. Security personnel eventually used tear gas to bring the situation under control. So just how inhumane is Australia's policy? Tim Wilson is the country's Human Rights Commissioner. During his visit to London this week, he popped in for a chat with Monocle's executive editor, Steve Bloomfield. When you look at human rights in a context like Australia, they sit as part of a contest of ideas and values that people believe in. Rights, freedom, fairness, justice and responsibility. And so appealing to only one of those value sets as part of public discourse isn't going to win you an argument. And we don't have a legal environment that has a strong protection for rights outside of what we inherited from the common law at the time, obviously, the foundation of the modern nation. And so it plays an interesting part of the discussion around issues that periodically pop up, whether it's around asylum seekers or same-sex couples or transgendered people, where rights always have to be seen as being advancing as part of a much broader value set than just rights alone. So, for example, someone fleeing persecution Mm. in Afghanistan or fleeing the horrendous civil war in Syria who ends up on a boat heading to Australia, do they have human rights? Because sat from here, it can sometimes seem that they don't. Well, of course, the answer is they do have human rights. But human rights can take on different forms. There's a a philosophical commitment to it. And then there's what exists in practice in law. And every country gets to decide that. But of course, a lot of rights are directly attached to citizenship. Until somebody arrives into a country, is accepted as a citizen, or at least is given some sort of visa class, they're not given that. People, of course, have a right to seek asylum. But whether a country chooses to grant it is a very different thing because, of course, no country can grant asylum to an unlimited number of people. So we have people arriving in our nation and getting back to the point I started with, issues of security are very important and border security is very important. What do you mean by security? Have have there been cases where people have been granted asylum and then they've turned out to be terrorists? There have certainly been cases where people have gone on to commit acts of violence, but I'm not talking about that. Right. What I'm talking about is a sense of sovereignty, which is very important to the Australian people. And as a consequence, there's always this tension about making sure we accept asylum seekers, but it being done in a way where the country maintains its control of its borders and feels that it is in charge of the process. When did your family arrive in Australia? How long ago back? Well, there are lots of different parts of of my family. So some of it was in the 1940s. Some of it was much earlier than that. We have always, of course, been a migrant nation in the nation's current form, but it has always been done on the basis and understanding about legal migration and processes about that. Do you ever feel a bit awkward, though, thinking about how parts of your family arrived in Australia by boat seeking a better life? And now here you are saying to others who are going through the same process, sorry, mate, no. Well, I think every Australian has a tension about how we accept asylum seekers, because it's not as though people are saying we don't want people in the country. In fact, it's complete reverse. Australians support migration. They support receiving people who arrive um, as asylum seekers. 
but they want it to be done in a managed and legal process that they feel the country is in control of. So do we all have tensions around this issue? Absolutely. But as an island continent, it's very important for the public to have control of that process and to make sure that people who are received as asylum seekers and refugees are based on need and based on uh, a priority which isn't based on your economic position to get to Australia versus being stuck in a refugee camp on some other side of the world. That was Tim Wilson there, Australia's Human Rights Commissioner on Wednesday's edition of the Monocle Daily. This is the recap on Monocle 24. On Wednesday, Anheuser-Busch InBev formalised a deal to acquire its British South African rival SAB Miller for $107 billion. The deal still faces approval by regulators. If it does go ahead, though, the resulting gigantic global beer company would sell more than 30% of all the beer produced commercially worldwide. But what would that mean for the consumer point of view? Well, Tom Edwards was joined by Stephen Beaumont, world-renowned beer expert and author, on Thursday's edition of The Briefing. I think for a beer consumer, it's going to result in less selection at the major brand level. Mm. A company like that is so colossal, they're going to necessarily start shedding brands. ABI, Anheuser-Busch InBev, has been doing this for years anyway. The brands might still exist, but they're, for all intents and purposes, discontinued because no one sees them anywhere. For a small beer producer, it gets a little nerve-wracking because now you've got a company that can come in and fill every tap Mm. in the bar, and they have the stable that can cover every base. So a lazy publican just says, oh, yeah, you know, come in, bring everything at once, and I'm done. I think I know a few of those, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So are we wrong then? If we look at this, if we take a step back and look at it, is it about looking at micro or craft producers versus then an increasingly small number of really massive global players? That's a very accurate depiction of the playing field. One of the interesting fallout effects of this deal is that I think we're going to see more deals. I think Heineken's going to have to step up and buy somebody. Mm. I think the Japanese are going to start getting aggressive. They've been buying lately anyway, so I think they'll probably step that up a bit. Carlsberg is going to be under pressure to do something. Mm. So we're going to see that level shrink at the top. The biggest are going to get that much bigger. The antitrust issues are going to be felt mostly in the United States, where they're already taking care of that. The Miller Coors is going to be sold to Molson Coors. And China. China is the largest beer producer in the world by a significant margin. Mm. The Chinese produce more beer than the next three largest beer producing countries in the world. So SAB and ABI both have joint ownership properties in China, and the Chinese are going to have to look at that. And that means a colossal company is going to come on the market at some point. More consolidation. Now, I know a lot of your work, your writing, uh, your new book is about the subtleties, the nuances, the pleasures of fine beer drinking, uh, food matching sort of thing, which you've been doing for a number of years now. Are you, I don't know, reassured, if that's the right word, that there is sufficient interest globally now in what I would call proper beer, and I'm making one of those speech marks with my hands there, that it can ride out the pressures that we've described from some of these big titans on the scene? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the reason that this deal is happening is Africa. Anheuser-Busch InBev has nothing in Africa. SAB is big in Africa. And Africa is a developing beer market. There are very few developing beer markets in the world these days. So when you look at the craft beer level, it's strongest in Western Europe, in North America. And those are the markets that ABI has already said, you know what, we're not really concerned about that. Hmm. We have declining volumes in both those markets. 
We can raise prices to increase revenues. We can chop breweries and cut costs to make sure we're still profitable. But we're not really going to concern ourselves with those markets because they're shrinking markets anyway. That allows the craft brewers in the UK, in the US, Canada, Italy, France to really step up and say, this is our marketplace now. Mm. And that's why you're seeing these double-digit growth numbers throughout the craft world in North America and Western Europe. I think the craft front is going to continue to explode, continue to expand, even as on the major label front, it's going to shrink. That was a beer expert and writer Stephen Beaumont there, who has just released the book The Beer and Food Companion, speaking to Monocle's Tom Edwards on Thursday's edition of The Briefing. You're listening to The Recap on Monocle 24 with me, Ben Rylan. In recent years, the United Kingdom, once a leader in world affairs issues, has begun to look decidedly unsure of itself in matters of foreign policy. That indecisiveness ranges from how to deal with Syria to more everyday concerns when interacting with that eternal bugbear of the British politician, Europe. The much-touted potential Brexit of Britain from the Union hits headlines any time the nation has any kind of crisis of opinion on Europe-based issues. And now a critical new report from senior diplomats has suggested Cameron and his cohorts need to decide the nation's direction once and for all. So is it time the UK decided what it really wants? Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Quinton Peel, associate fellow at Chatham House and contributor to the Financial Times, joined Monocle's executive editor Steve Bloomfield on Monday's edition of Midori House. A German friend, quite leading politician, put it to me like this. At a time when Europe is facing a crisis with Russia, a crisis in the Middle East driving an enormous flood of refugees, and an economic crisis in the Eurozone, honestly, what on earth do the British think about geopolitics? politics that they're trying to renegotiate a few little tweaks and turns on their EU membership. Whether we actually want to be part of an ever closer union or whether migrants coming here get two years or four years of work before they have benefits. It's as if we're losing sight of the big picture. And I think that has been a trend that's been going on for some time, although one cannot accuse Tony Blair of having been part of, he certainly wanted to play the big game on the world Mm. stage. Trouble was, he got it wrong. And as a result, it's not just just the political leadership, if you like, but I think a wider feeling in the country ever since the Iraq fiasco, we don't want to do that sort of thing again. So that's compounded, if you like, I think a period of real introspection and insularity in Britain. Certainly, I agree that the present malaise goes back to Tony Blair and the Iraq war, not because he showed ambition, but because he signed up to a particularly bad US administration, making a particularly bad series of of judgments. Who knows uh, why he did that? And also within that, it went against most of the opinion within Europe as well. He did indeed. And, you know, Britain has been, you know, somehow straddling this uncomfortable position between the US as its major ally, and that makes it somehow different, and it's a permanent five member and so on, and a future in Europe. My problem with the current set of arrangements is that Mr. Cameron doesn't seem to know what he wants, and every decision that the Conservative government seems to take seems to be a function of his inability to lead his own party. And, you know, these small decisions that Quentin complains about are really to please small constituencies within the Conservative Party. This is no way to run foreign policy. I remember the days when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister and they had to basically build a special tent to fit all the journalists in who wanted to hear what she had to say. And now, who goes to hear David Cameron? Is that also partly, Quentin, because 
Britain's not in the euro. And over the last five years, most of the EU summits have been concerned with the euro and its survival. Well, it's not just that. I mean, look at the refugee crisis in Europe today. This is huge. And David Cameron is refusing to have any serious part of it at all. I was in Berlin last week and talking to Wolfgang Schäuble, the finance minister, and he said, look at the situation in Calais. 6,000 refugees. That's fewer than are coming to Germany every single day of the week. He said, it's a scandal and a shame that Britain and France can't deal with that. That was a highlight there from Monday's edition of Midori House. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of The Recap. Today's show was put together by Wei Dong Lin. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of our live news programs broadcast across the schedule right here on Monocle 24. But for now, from me, Ben Ryland, thanks for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 